never a choice of the nation Our chieftain so brave and so true And we'll go for the great reformation For Lincoln and Liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero who drew him through The pride of the sucker so lucky For Lincoln well, Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I will be continuing my look at the writings of, of Abraham Lincoln. And we have, um, you know, we've worked through his writings since the 1830s. I think the first documents we looked at were, were when he first ran for office and lost in 1832 or something. Um, but mostly we've been spending our time in the 1850s with the Lincoln-Douglas debates and, and the, the, you know, his, the, you know, kind of the, the rise to, to, to national prominence in the late 1850s in the context of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Dred Scott decision, right? So those things don't go away entirely. There's still issues, especially Dred Scott, when it comes to how to handle uh, what were called contraband slaves, right? Uh, you know, runaway slaves who owned by people in rebellion, right? What, to, what should the military do with that? What should the government do with that? I mean, actually, the Dred Scott decision plays a role in that. But a lot of these debates, kind of, of course, go away when war breaks out, right? And it becomes, um, you know, Lincoln's, I guess, destiny became to, to, to save the United States, to save, to save the Union. And um, the documents from 1861 to 1865 really revolve around that. So we're going to be talking about his policy towards slavery, of course. We'll be talking about his, um, <clears throat> you know, other domestic issues that, that, that may come up, but largely about how he was as a, as a war president, right? And, and Lincoln was famously active, right? More so than any previous president during wartime. And of course, there weren't that many um, previous wars. You got the War of 1812, you had uh, various Indian conflicts with Indians, and you had... Um, the Mexican War, and in, in those, as far as I know, the presidents weren't, you know, active in in governing the war effort, right? Not really being commander in chief, delegating that stuff to generals. Lincoln, you know, did something different in that he was very much, you know, directing military policy, appointing generals, firing generals, pushing generals to act, or or, or whatever. Um, and he he had a fairly innate sense of, of military strategy, which is an interesting thing you notice for someone who only fought briefly in the Black Hawk War, didn't really have much military service. He had enough for for a politician's purpose, but um, you know he he did have this kind of innate concept of how to win the war and and you know how to follow through on a strategy in the long term, despite the bleak opening for the Union in the early years of the war. So we'll be looking at all that stuff, right? in the coming episodes as we finish up this series on, on American political writing of, 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 of the early 19th century, or the first half of the 19th century. That's what, that, that's what the series is shaking out to be, right? Starting with Jefferson, then Tocqueville, and, and now Lincoln. Now, as with uh, other periods of time in this book, especially the second volume, the, fir the first volume of the Lincoln writings, you know, you have the Lincoln-Douglas debates is the major element of that. And those are long speeches, right? Long, really significant works of scholarship in, so in some ways. And now, in, in these documents, you have a few great speeches, of course. You have the, the two inaugural addresses, both very, very famous. You have the Gettysburg Address. You know, and a few other speeches he gives, and they're they're all of course recorded in here. But largely, you're dealing with with letters and letters to his cabinet, letters to generals, and and you know the the politics of war and and the, and, and just how he governed, right? So a whole lot of documents, you know, two three a page, you know, in some cases. Usually, it's, it's like about one a page, and you know, I don't have time, or, or you don't want to hear me talk about all hundred of these, right? So what I, what I did is I I just broke this down into what I think. The year 1861, of course. I broke it down into <clears throat> um, 
four important like issues. Um, two really dealing with the early stages of the war and the, and the conflict, um, and two dealing with the, the slavery question. Um, so the first issue I want to talk about is the the attempts of, of Lincoln after he's elected, of course, after, uh, a month and a half after the election, South Carolina secedes from the Union. Uh, I think it's, you know, five other states or six other states follow. The, the deep southern states follow shortly after that. And then, you know, even before Lincoln's inauguration, you had the convention in Montgomery in Alabama in which the Confederate States of America was formed. This has all happened before Lincoln takes the, the oath of office in, in Washington, D.C., Right. So his speeches and he gives this course, a very famous tour where he he crosses, it goes from Springfield to Washington and it, it takes weeks and weeks where he gives these little speeches. And of course, and then it all the culmination of all this is the first inaugural address where kind of he puts together all these themes for kind of a national audience and really directed to the South. The audience of these speeches, the audience for the first inaugural is really the South. Right. And he's trying to avoid a war, trying to. You know, preserve the Union. And of course, as everyone who took, you know, first grade history in the United States, at least knows Lincoln in the early stages of the war, believed that that ending or winning the war, preserving the Union was more important than the, the issue of slavery. Right. His commitment to ending slavery, seeing slavery ended, I think, never wavered. But he did not want to to lose the union in the pursuit of that, right? So this, of course, becomes a big issue in his policy towards the border states, the policy towards um, military emancipation, or something we'll get to later. But everyone sort of already knows that about him, so we don't have to dwell on it too much, but he's trying to kind of have the olive branch to the South, and you know he does draw some lines, though. So he's trying to avoid a conflict in the early, early years. And then this kind of leading into this is the second issue, and that's the, the Fort Sumter issue, right? That where Lincoln really drew that line and how he defended that line and how that, that um, led to the South acting in, in an aggressive manner, led, led to the Confederacy beginning the war by attacking federal property in, in Fort Sumter. Um, now, the, the first major battle of the Civil War is not given too much attention. I think no attention, actually, in this, in this book. I think some of the generals around it, you know, we have some letters to them, maybe. Um, Winfield Scott was the commander at the time, and then Lincoln sort of pushed him aside and, and took over leadership after the first um, major defeat at, at Bull Run. First major union defeat at the, the Battle of Bull Run. It's not really, there's nothing here really about that, but of course that's in the backdrop, right? And then, especially in 1862, you had defeat after defeat in Virginia, which of course, uh, you know, is probably the lowest point uh, of, of the Union war effort. Um, and then that, that kind of bad news begins in 1861. But I think to Lincoln's credit, he never really doubted ultimate, of, well, maybe he did from time to time, but he, he, he seemed to. Always look long term in the in the fighting of the war, right? Try, looking for the right commanders, you know, having, you know, constantly putting pressure on 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 Virginia and on Richmond, uh, all those things. Um, anyways, where am I? Uh, yeah. So the Fort Sumter issue. So the first two are kind of connected, right? Like how how Lincoln kind of put down the grounds for compromise and how he he kind of put the limits of how far he would go in compromise. And, and that, of course, you know, is the context for Fort Sumter. Um, <clears throat> using my words carefully here, because uh, obviously this, the Confederacy was the aggressor uh, in, in that issue. Um, okay, the second, the, the last two issues I want to talk about are, are military emancipation, right? So we have a lot of documents here surrounding the Fremont, Fremont uh, emancipation. Now, Fremont was a very, very famous explorer who was involved before the war in Western ex ex exploration. He was also an abolitionist, and he was given like, like command over Missouri. Now, early in the war, you know, Maryland was the border states, right? Those three border states that were most likely to maybe join the Confederacy, Missouri, Kentucky, and, and Maryland. These, of course, were big issues. Lincoln at one point even says, like, if we lose Kentucky, we might lose the whole game. Right now, Maryland was maybe even more important because if Maryland had seceded, Washington D.C., the capital would have been in in Confederate territory, right? But there was a more of aggressive approach there 
where the military really kind of occupied Maryland directly and, and made it very unlikely that Maryland would secede. Um, if it had, it wouldn't have lasted very long as a, as a, a member of the Confederacy. Kentucky, you had the kind of the softest hand early on where, where Lincoln really kind of had a neutrality policy towards Kentucky, um, trying to, you know, get uh, the Confederacy to maybe invade Kentucky, break neutrality, and, and get them to side with the Union directly. And that, that you know, I think by 1862, that, that, that situation ends. But by then, Kentucky was firmly in the Union camp. Missouri is kind of a, a, a slightly different case, but it's, it's another state that Lincoln was worried would go either way, right? But Fermont, the, person, the military commander in Missouri, um, was an abolitionist and very much anti-slavery. Uh, and famous, and, and really a, a major kind of person of, of national renown, right? Now, one of the first things he does as commander of troops out in the West was basically emancipate the slaves in, in, in the area where he commanded, right? And then Lincoln has to respond to that. I, it's his first test, I guess, of what to do with the realities of, like, the fact that the war is going to lead to uh, a million slaves running away, right? He probably maybe didn't know it at the time, but... It was pretty clear early on in the war that thousands of, of slaves would take advantage of the war to run away and that there would be occupied territory where slaves who are owned by secessionists would continue to have plantations and continue to profit from slave labor. What would you do in those cases? Um, do you return slaves who run away? Uh, you know, this is why the Dred Scott decision was important, right? The Dred Scott decision said slaves were property, you know, just like any other piece of property, right? So why should the army treat them differently than, you know, other property that might be seized by rebels, right? Of course, the other side of it is, is the abolitionist goal to see these, these slaves as people, right? People with rights and, and a right to freedom, among other things. And some wanted to see slaves armed very early in the war. And, and Lincoln has to kind of on the one hand, he's using kind of the Dred Scott logic to justify, you know, take, taking these runaway slaves and using them as, you know, it's called contraband in the, in the lingo of the time. And the pressure from abolitionists to, to free these people, right? And then Lincoln doesn't, if he starts freeing people in the borders, you know, slaves in the border states in particular, where you have powerful landowners who have slaves, you know, might tip towards secession if Lincoln starts to do that. Anyways, as we know, it's it's a very it was a tough issue for Lincoln early on, right? And it takes him a, a year and a half to finally back um, a general emancipation for for slaves in the South. Um, so, but the first real battle of that is the Vermont Emancipation in Missouri, and then we got like Lincoln's kind of retort to this and his other way of his kind of moderate position of dealing with the border state issue, and that's a policy of, of compensated emancipation. And, and he tries to push Congress to basically push federal money behind people who want to emancipate their slaves, and, and then he, he's still a backer of colonization at this point. Um, I don't know if he ever abandoned colonization as maybe a long-term goal. I, we already know he doesn't think it's practical. He talks about that in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, how impractical um, it, it would be. But anyways, um, that's it. That's the four things we're going to talk about. And I, I've kind of already summed it up. So if you want, you can stop listening. But that's what I think is important in 1861. Those are the things. All right. Um, jump into the documents. Um, right away, we see, you know, the problem of compromise being talked about in, in, in Lincoln in two other Republicans in letters and things. So, for instance, we've got a letter to Lyman Trumbull. Trumbull, of course, is the other, what was one of the senators from Illinois uh, in, in Washington. Uh, the Republican. The other, of course, is Stephen A. Douglas winning the 1858 election. By the way, besides Stephen Douglas being like the nemesis of Lincoln, if you want to think of it that in those terms, political nemesis throughout the 1850s, being you know nationally prominent, pushing policies Lincoln opposed. You know, they had the epic debates. They're from the same state. You know, it's such a nice pairing. They actually became you know, comrades of a sort. Uh, Douglas, of course, was anti-secessionist, pro-union. He totally backed the union after secession began and totally backed Lincoln um, as, as president. He only lived for um, like a, a year or so. He died sometime in 1861. Um, <clears throat> probably somewhat broken. I mean, certainly his goal, you know, he died seeing the, the, the nation he loved falling apart. And probably he feels that he could have done more to to save it had he been president, but his loyalty 
uh, to the president. Um, I think can't be can't be doubted. In the short period of time he was he was still alive after Lincoln's inauguration. Um, but anyways, Lyman Trouble was the other, right? And he talks about the difficulty of compromise in this letter. And this is dated January 7th, 1861. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong document. Yeah. But anyways, it's good to set up, to, to, to talk about Stephen Douglas a little bit through the, you know, I use Lyman Trumbull to get to Stephen Douglas. But anyways, the real document I want to talk about here is James T. Hale, who was a representative from Pennsylvania. And he's the one who talks about... <clears throat> Just the, the, the trouble of, of, of compromise. He said, of course, surrender is not an option, right? He says, if either way, if we surrender, it's the end of us and of the government. They will repeat the experiment upon us at libitum. Basically, he's saying if we give in to them and they rejoin the union on some some ground, right? right then they'll just kind of push it, push it, right? Yeah, next time and threaten. Secession could become a threat, right? That's, that's the problem with any compromise. He says, a year will not pass till we should have to take Cuba as a condition upon which they'll stay in the Union. They now have the Constitution under which we have lived over 70 years and acts of Congress of their own framing with no prospect of their being changed. And they can never have a more shallow pretext for breaking up the government or exhorting a compromise than now. There is, in my judgment, but one compromise which would really settle the slavery question, and that would be the prohibition against acquiring any more territory. Yours very truly. So he talks about just if we give in on slavery in the territories, right? Because at this point, he still says, I'm not going to touch slavery where it exists, right? In fact, I think he supported a constitutional amendment. Um, <clears throat> it didn't pass, but a constitutional amendment which would have guaranteed slavery where it existed. Um, but, he's, you know, if we compromise on slavery in the territories, the only way to avoid another crisis would be essentially no new territory. And, and he, you know, he's an American president, so he's a good imperialist, like all American presidents before and since. Um, but, you know, but Cuba was always kind of the threat that I think there was murmurings about getting Cuba in the 1850s and even the 1840s. You know, I think one guy even said, let's make, you know, Cuba like 10 states. <laughs> let's take Cuba and make it 10 different states because then we can have 20 extra votes in, in the Senate, right? Now, um, the speeches he gives on the way east to Washington are quite interesting. They're usually very short. They're like very, very short stump speeches. I think mostly they're about a page. Some are, some are just one page. We have quite a few of them here. I don't know if we have all of them. Of course, one little note, uh, the, you know, he may, meets Grace Bettel when he's going through New York, right? And he actually gets to talk with her. By now, Lincoln, of course, has his beard, right? He grew the beard during the campaign um, before the election. I, I, basically because Grace Bettel, this young 11-year-old girl, told him to grow a beard. And he uh, he meets Grace Bettel in New York, and they, they kind of share some words. It's kind of a nice little story of this of this journey east. Um, <clears throat> these speeches are are good. I mean, they're they're short to the point. Really, the audience for these is often the South, um, and they kind of have a very steady theme. And you see that in the speech in Indianapolis, where he talks about the danger of of using language like coercion or invasion. Like he really doesn't want to start a war. He doesn't want to force the South back into back into the Union, where he says that do lovers of the, of, of the Union contend that they will resist coercion or invasion of any state, understanding that all any or all of us would be coercing or invading a state. If they do, then it occurs to me that the means for the preservation of the Union they so greatly love, in their own estimation, is of a very thin and airy character. So on the other hand, that's what this quote shows you, that although he does hesitate to, to fire the first shot, and, and he, he's very careful in making sure it's the Confederacy that fires the first shot, that's the importance of the Fort Sumter thing. You know, he at the same time, he says, like, if you're if you're saying we'll never lift a rifle to preserve the union, you know, what's the point? Right. That's kind of the problem of pacifism. Right. It's it's one thing to be a pacifist in a certain context to oppose a war, maybe that feels unjust. But, you know, if if you're a pacifist, how do you stop? I mean, how do you stop something like slavery if you're a pacifist? Right. Um, you know, so there's a limit to pacifism, it seems to me. And I, I kind of agree with Lincoln here. He's saying, you know, if you really love the Union, you know, it might come to blows. It might come to invasion. It might come to occupation of the South State and some form of coercion. And so um, you need to be prepared for that. That's kind of what he's saying here. Um, but, he, but he says a little bit more in this speech, which has really 
interesting. And that's, he really starts to question how important a state is, what a state even is. And of course, that's one of the outcomes of the Civil War, is that the ending of that debate over states' rights, right? Um, of course, Lincoln's position is that this was kind of, the Constitution was in a, a contract in, in which, a kind of a permanent union, and states couldn't just opt out anytime they didn't like a law passed, right? I mean, the idea is that it would be preposterous to have a, a union based on the, you know, people being able to opt out whenever they wanted. Otherwise, every election, you'd have different states leaving or rejoining the union just because they don't like who's pre who the president is. Um, so he thinks that was never the intention of, of the framers to have it, it be optional. And once it was ratified, it was agreed to permanently. Right. And he kind of really doubts how important like the state, like the san sanctity of the state. He says, what is the particular sacredness of a state? I speak not of the position which is given to a state in and by the Constitution of the United States. For that, we all agree to, we abide by. But that the position assumed that a state can carry with it out of the union that which it holds its sacredness by virtue of its connection with the union. I'm speaking of that assumed right of a state as the primary principle the Constitution should rule. All that is less than itself and ruin all that is bigger than itself, end quote. I mean, this is kind of a subtle argument where he says, right, the importance of the state in the union only makes sense in the union. Once once you leave, you, you lack that, right? So states' rights only make sense in the context of an insolvable union. Another speech I want to talk about is is one he gave to in Cincinnati, which was a speech to Germans. Yeah, I don't know how we had an audience just of Germans or in what context. Probably look it up. Maybe it was a kind of a gathering of, of Germans. Um, but here he, he, he talks more about like dom domestic issues, like especially the Homestead Act. He puts a lot of his support for the Homestead Act. You know, this is, of course, an issue that would have been of great interest to German migrants who would be interested in land out in the West. Right. He also, you know, kind of welcomes Germans to the nation, saying they're basically good people. Um, but also... Um, you know, he, he kind of talks about them as people who are fleeing kind of tyranny, right? And I think he must be thinking about the revolutions of 1848, you know, and, and all that, because um, a lot of the Germans kind of fled to America after 1848. On that, he, he said, I esteem them, the Germans, no better than other people, nor any worse. It is not my nature when I see a people borne down by the weight of their shackles, the oppression of tyranny, to make their lives more bitter by heaping upon them greater burdens, but rather would I do all my part to raise their yoke and add anything that would tend to crush them? Um, and then he makes a general point that we're empty, Europe's full, you know, we're going to have an open door for, for migrants. Now, obviously, he's, he's, he wants to shore up German support for the war effort. And, of course, Germans, German-Americans fought valiantly in, in the Civil War. Um, but, you know, he's, he's concerned. He he's, must have this concern, right, of of shoring up this diverse north and it's and the support of these immigrant groups for the war effort because they may not feel as deeply attached to the success of the union as someone who was descended from revolutionary war heroes or something um but he's given them something right he's saying you know we're going to have you got the homestead act right you're going to have land we're going to have a you know a welcoming a welcoming nation for migrants is is kind of what he says here and what else do we got uh speech in cleveland what does this one talk about yeah this speech is a little bit more conciliatory towards the south saying he basically makes a couple of points one is that we've done everything legally obligatory to defend slavery in the south he mentions the future slave law basically he's making the point the south hasn't been wronged in any way Certainly not by the Republicans who hadn't had power up to this point. They're, they're still not in power. Um, and by the, the Union overall hasn't wronged the South. But from this, then he says, well, what is this crisis then? If it's, if it's, not, a justifiable, if it's not justifiable, what's its foundation? And he comes to the conclusion that essentially it's, um, it's an artificial crisis, right? I, I think that's something that Lincoln maintains throughout the war, is that it was a minority group of people who kind of pushed for for secession, right? Now, of course, there is wide popular support for it, but it, it, some of that's due to conscription, you know, that so many Southerners served. Um, in fact, I think the Southerners did a 
worst job in kind of showing up military discipline and, and, and commitment. We see this from desertion rates and things like that. Um, but, you know, still he's trying to paint this picture that, you know, it's, it's a crisis that's been trumped up by, by a handful of, of people uh, for no reason, right? So that's, that's part of his message as he travels across the nation. All right. There, there's a bunch of these speeches in this volume, and they're 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 worth looking at just to, to know the message. It's not the same message, but it, there's kind of a common theme there that you know this is a crisis that can be overcome. Um, you know that compromise is possible, right? But there at the same time, there's firm lines in the sand, right? The fundamental nature of the union can't be transformed because a few states throw a temper, temper tantrum, right? And that all culminates in the first inaugural address. Right, which I hope you've read at some point, both the inaugural addresses. The second is, is, is more epic, even though it's shorter. This one is, you know, got very different goals, right? He's, he's more systematic. He's more conciliatory. He's, it's a very different Lincoln, right? The second inaugural is looking forward to the end of the war and, and the aftermath and the reconstruction in a way. And the first inaugural is before the war even begins. But he's, he's got this. Or anyways, what does he say here? Well, he, he starts out saying, like, we're not going to interfere with the property of Southerners, essentially slavery. That that's, you know, where slavery exists, it's going to be protected, right? And he reiterates something he said a lot in the Lincoln-Douglas debates and the Cooper Union speech is that there's a fundamental disagreement between the morality of slavery. That's a disagreement. That's a conversation to be had. But that doesn't mean Republicans are going to undo slavery where it exists because of, there's constitutional obligations to it. There are you know, political realities, social realities. This is what he's been saying, you know, since even before the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but particularly in those debates. So that's not new. So the way he says it is, one section of the country believes slavery is right and ought to be extended, while the other believes it is wrong and ought, to, and ought not to be extended. This is the only substantial dispute. Now, at the same time, though, he draws a line in the sand and he basically says, we will protect uh, federal property in the, in, in the South. Right. And of course, military bases, arsenals, um, you know, any federal forts, right, is really what he's talking about here. Now, most of these forts get taken very quickly in the, in the states that seceded. Um, you know, the, the arsenals, the, the military assets, forts, they all get taken. There, there's basically two exceptions to this. One is Fort Sumter uh, and the other was Fort Pickens. Now, these are both like off shore forts. Now, Fort Sumter, very close to the port of Charleston, basically it was the fort that defended the port of Charleston. Fort Pickens was farther out and outside of cannon range. So it could be resupplied without too much danger. It wasn't at risk. But Fort Sumter was the other. Now, most of the rest of the property gets taken. Of course, Lincoln says this is still our stuff right? and you don't have a right to take it. But he, he's not really able to stop that. But by saying they're, they're, you know, we have the right to defend our property and, you know, and you know, that's going to be the line he draws. Uh, that's going to eventually force the Confederacy to, to begin the war. He says, um, the government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without yourself being the aggressor. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, or defend. Of course, he hadn't yet taken the oath, so he would. Um, so... So the whole first inaugural is on this theme, right? Um, he says the Constitution and the Union is unbroken, and he'll make sure it's unbroken. Um, you know, his idea here being that it's kind of an aberration. Secession was an aberration pushed through by basically illegal, basically they're kind of coup d'etats, right? By illegal state, con, you know, conventions that didn't have this, the, didn't have the support of the people. Plus, wouldn't it have been legal even if they did? That's his, that's, so the union is not broken, is, is his line, right? So he says, in preserving the union, there will be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none unless forced upon the national authority. The power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government, and to collect the duties and imposts. And quite like taxes, still collect taxes. Of course, a lot of this is, is simply impossible. He's not going to have every arsenal or every military unit or every fort preserved, but... He's putting, he, you know, he's putting the South in this position that if, you know, if they push on this, he's got the legitimate 
grounds to to defend that property. Um, he even says at one point, um, mail will continue to be furnished to all parts of the Union if unless repelled. You know, it's like even the post office will continue to deliver to the South. So he, he's going ahead as if um, the Union is, for all intents, intact. Um, a very, very purposeful speech, very much with very clear political goals. Um, it's not as, as lofty, maybe, as the second inaugural, which we'll talk about in a few episodes. But the ending is very nice, and, and, again, and it's something you memorize in, in high school, I suppose. Quote, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the course of union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. End quote. Um, optimism optimism is, has its place. And, and, you know, obviously we know the outcome of the war uh, challenges that idea and the, in the, in the what happens after the war and the you know reconstruction and the reaction to it and sectional divides continuing and um you know that this this course of union i'm not sure has, has always been there but um yeah i give him credit for for a little bit of optimism here so anyways that's the first issue i wanted to talk about was this this journey to the east and the first inaugural and and kind of the ground he sets for um for drawing this line in the sand, uh, forcing the Confederacy to to take the first move, and then of course the grounds for the compromise, right? saying I'm not going to touch slavery where it exists, but we're not we're you know, we're not going to roll over on on slavery in the territories. All right, so immediately after the inauguration um, from the executive mansion, I think maybe even the same day. Let me check. No, the first inaugural was on March 4th. So um, we have this document uh, to Winfield Scott on March 9th. Now, Winfield Scott, he was, of course, the hero of the Mexican War. He was the in charge of the army um, before Lincoln kind of took over the reins as, as a true commander in chief and in, in, in all that means. Um, so just a few days, less than a week after the first inaugural, and I'm sure this is not the first time he mentions it in a, in a letter, but he does basically asked for a report and and clarity on on Fort Sumter and he asks uh, certain questions of, of the general he says at what point can Major Anderson who is commanding the handful of troops that were uh, federal troops at Fort Sumter uh, at what point in time can he maintain his position without fresh supplies um, and then he asks, kind of what would it take to, to defend it and we don't have the letter here because these are all just Lincoln's writings it's not a back-and-forth um, Except Lincoln-Douglas debates were back and forth, but most of these letters don't have the response or what inspired the letter. And I, I think that makes this collection a little frustrating at times. But, of course, it also make it much longer and, and unwieldy to have all the responses. Um, but anyway, I think Winfield's response was something like, we would need like 20,000 troops to secure it. And that's more than the number of men under uniform at the time. So basically, Lincoln knows that holding the fort is impossible. And this leads him to write this letter to Robert Anderson, who is the, the commander at the fort. This is dated, um, this is dated uh, April 4th, 1861. Of course, the attack's on April 12th. He says, uh, it is not, however, the intention of the president to subject your command to any danger or hardship beyond what in your judgment would be usual in military life and has entire confidence that you'll act as becomes a patriot and a soldier under the circumstances. Whenever, if at all, in your judgment to save yourself in command, a capitulation becomes a necessity, you are authorized to make it. And actually, this is signed by Simon Cameron, but this essentially was written by Lincoln. This is Lincoln's order to Anderson. Basically saying, when they attack, you, you surrender when you feel you've kind of put up enough face, I guess. I, that's how I read it. And of course, that's... Um, um, Oh, by the way, it says here this letter was not delivered to Major Anderson. Anyways, but that's what Anderson does. Um, you know, the attack begins April 12th. He realized, you know, not long after, he, he surrenders, right? No one dies in the exchange. There's no shit shooting back and forth, but no one dies in the exchange. And and that's that. That's, that's the Battle of Fort Sumter. But that's what starts the war, obviously. 
Okay, now after this, we got the f uh, four more states to secede. It's Arkansas, Virginia, Tennessee, and what's the other one? It must be North Carolina, right? Uh, anyways, uh, those upper southern states, they secede after fighting um, breaks out. Now, Lincoln writes a letter to the Virginia Convention. Of course, like the other states, there was a convention that decided the issue of secession. And of course, Virginia had one. And he, of course, he's very, you know, worried about Virginia. Uh, Virginia is, of course, right next to Washington. Um, now, Virginia is an interesting case because it had a large loyalist population. We know this because of the creation of West Virginia. In fact, all of those West, the states, the, the part of the country that became West Virginia, the part of the state of Virginia that became West Virginia, they all voted in the convention to not secede, right? So they basically refused to acknowledge uh, the secessionist convention. So it was divided. It, it was a place that what slavery still was a major institution, but it was of declining importance, becoming a more diversified economy. Um, also, you have the question of Maryland, right? If Virginia f goes, maybe Maryland will go too. kind of a similar part of the country similar economy fewer slaves though but now that's of course would have put washington in confederate territory so he's very concerned about virginia and of course the fact that so much fighting took place in virginia shows that he was he had the right intuition here to be concerned about virginia's secession but he doesn't like compromise too much to virginia in this letter actually he's take quite a firm hand i think he says, nothing's changed from my point of view from what I said in the first inaugural address. I'm going to defend, um, you know, slavery where the right to own slaves where it exists, you know, but there's certain limits to his compromise. But on other issues, he's a little bit firmer. He says um, in this letter, by the words property and places belonging to the government, I chiefly allude to the military posts and property, which were in the possession of the government when it came into my hands. But if, as it now appears to be true, the Pursuit of a purpose to drive the United States authority from these places, an unprovoked assault has been made upon Fort Sumter. I shall hold myself at liberty to repossess if I can, like places that have been seized before the government was devolved upon me. In any event, I shall, to the extent of my ability, repel force by force. In case it proves true that Fort Sumter has been assaulted, as is reported, I shall perhaps cause the United States males to be withdrawn from all states which claim to have seceded, believing that the commencement of actual war against the government justifies and possibly demands this. End quote. So he is, it is kind of a more threatening um, letter. Of course, that's dated April 13th, one, one day after the bombing of Fort Sumter began. All right. Um, so, yeah, war, war begins. All right. Now, uh, this Union strategy, Lincoln's strategy, it was pretty consistent throughout the, the war. You know, there was setbacks, of course, but it's more or less the way the war was won was by following through on the strategy um, was the anaconda approach. Right. So the idea was to cut up the South, divide the South up into pieces and then kind of strangle it piecemeal. So it had like th three or four major elements. Right. First, the blockade. So you have, you know, blockading an export based economy, of course, is devastating to their um, the war effort for them, then cutting up the South would be the second part, right? So that the goal was to like to take the Mississippi and take Atlanta, right? And of course, these are that would have divided the Confederacy up into into three parts, and then taking Richmond. So that's kind of the three parts of this overall strategy, and that's more or less what is done, right? You have the blockade, the seizure of of islands along the coast, seizure of New Orleans, finally the the taking of the Mississippi, the taking of Atlanta, and then constant pressure on the capital, which had moved to Richmond, right? So the Confederacy moved their capital to Richmond, you know, to get, you know, partially I think it was to get the support of those, those upper South states. Um, that's the overall strategy. The Southern strategy, of course, they have the model of the American Revolution. They have, um, they have all kinds of weaknesses in, in manpower and railroads and industry and all, all that, no recognition. But what they had was based, their biggest advantage was that the, to def be defeated, they'd have to be occupied um, in total, right? And it's a huge area. It's like Western Europe. In fact, a student, uh, I was teaching 19th century world history to my students here in China, and we were talking about the wars of national unification. 
And, you know, world historians sometimes put the Civil War alongside Italian and German unification. Right? I think there's a, an interesting case to be made for that. So we talked about the wars of German unification. And, of course, the Germans defeated the Prussians, I should say. The Prussians defeated France in like six weeks. And he asked, like, why did it take the Union so long to defeat the South? Four years. And, you know, that's a really tough question. That's a really complicated question. A lot of things involved in that. Um, but ultimately, it's like, you know, the South was the size of, of, of Europe, essentially. And, you know, occupying that, controlling that, subduing that. Because it's very difficult. And, and it took a long time to do. Plus, there was, you know, a year of, of just massive military defeat. Devastating military defeat in the eastern in the eastern um, eastern front we don't use that term do we for the civil war the eastern theater i guess the eastern theater that's what, what we call that so uh we do have the orders uh that kind of set up this strategy a lot of this was pursued by winfield scott um he's got to make messages to congress he's, we of course have the state of the unions here um at, at each year the annual messages to Congress, but there are special session Congress um, messages. For instance, he gives one in, what's the date for it? Uh, sometime in the summer of 1861, before the, for the Battle of Bull Run, he gives this uh, special message to Congress where he talks a lot, you know, he's like a lot of it's just the news of the war. Um, you know, he's doing his due, due diligence in informing Congress on, on what he knows about the war and what's happened in the border states and what's happened in, um, to federal property in the South and forts and all that. Um, but, you know, that's all just um, boring stuff. But uh, he has a really, um, I mean, he talks about secession and he talks about the ideology of secession. And I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of look at how he's defining secession in this, in this point of the war. So he talks about the secessionists saying, they invented an ingenious sophism, which if conceded was followed by perfectly logical steps through all the incidents to the complete destruction of the union. The sophism itself is that this, any state of the union may consistently with the national constitution and therefore lawfully and peacefully withdraw from the union without the consent of the union or of any other state. The little disguise that they suppose right is to be exercised only for just cause themselves to be the sole judge of its justice is too thin to merit any notice. With rebellion thus sugar-coated, they have been drugging the public mind of their section for more than 30 years. And until at length, they have brought many good men to the willingness to take up arms against the government. The day after some assemblage of men have enacted the farcical pretense of taking their state out of the Union, who could have been brought to no such thing the day before. This sophism drives much, perhaps the whole of its currency, from the assumption that there is some omnipotence and sacred supremacy pertaining to a state, to each state of our federal Union. Our states have neither more nor less power than is reserved to them in the Union by the Constitution. No one of them has ever been a state out of the Union. The original ones passed into the Union even before they cast off the British colonial dependence and the new ones came into the Union directly from the condition of dependency, excepting Texas. Unquote. Now, I don't know about the history here. There might be a case that, you know, you had the Articles of Confederation, which did seem to give a little bit more status to the state. Those, of course, then they surrendered that into the Constitution. So, um, you know, I, I do think there's a little gray area there with those those original states. And Texas, of course, was an independent state before it joined the Union. So, but by and large, his point being is that for 30 years, like the South had been like poisoning the mind of Southerners with this ideology of secession. So he's talking about secession here as an ideology, as an idea and a pernicious idea. Uh, a sophism, as he calls it, but an, an idea that once the crisis came, the people are ready to accept and flock to it, right? So how was it that a minority, a small number of planters, you know, a, a small fraction of the population owned most of the slaves, you know, could get millions of people in the South to support the war effort? Of course, many didn't. We, we can't forget that. There's a lot of resistance to the planter class in the South. Um, but what else does he say in this fairly long special message? Oh, yeah, I think another really cool observation he makes is something very prescient because he's already predicting that the Civil War is going to resolve this state's rights issue once and for all. And of course it does. 
Um, but you know, of course, it, well, not entirely. Maybe of course, during the civil rights movement, it came back, right, with uh, resistance to the civil rights acts and things like that. But you know, it, for all intents and purposes, the states were dethroned. The ideology of of states' rights is dethroned by the war. The other thing he seems to notice, and he seems to almost be predicting here, the length of the war and how much it will be a, a bloody fight of endurance is he calls it a people's contest we, we think about like 20th century wars as people's contests right wars of of, of of ideologies and democracies and nations right um, but Lincoln here talks about this the Civil War as a people's contest quote this is essentially a people's contest on the side of the Union it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form, that substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of man, to lift artificial weights from all the shoulders, to clear the path of laudable pursuits to all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Yielding to partial and temporary departures from necessity, this is the leading object of the government for whose existence we contend. I'm happy to believe that the plain people understand and appreciate this." End quote. Um, it's not the Gettysburg Address, but the seed of the Gettysburg Address is in that idea, I think, right? That it's, there is this kind of, what, how's it put in the Gettysburg Address? The rebirth of freedom, right? He's sort of hinting at that here. So anyways, it's a, it's a nice, uh, the whole thing's a lot of details and maybe not the most exciting, but some good stuff here. All right, well, um, the Battle of Bull Run is, fought, of course, fought in the summer. Of 1861, a defeat for 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 the Union, um, which part of the outcome of that is Lincoln takes more direct control over military affairs from Winfield Scott. Um, just briefly on the border states, there's a several documents here dealing with the border states: Maryland, uh, Kentucky, and and Missouri. And of course, Lincoln had a different approach to each of these. So Maryland was dealt with basically essentially through military occupation. There was actually a riot, a pro-secessionist riot in Maryland that was put down. Um, and basically, by, by having troops on the ground, secession in Maryland was very unlikely. <clears throat> so, and that's despite the Maryland legislature being filled with secessionists. But uh, that was one dealt with more by just the force of, of, of troops on the ground. Now, Kentucky, what, you know, Kentucky... If it had seceded, it would have given the Confederacy access to the Ohio River. It would have, you know, you would have Confederate territory very, very far north. Um, it's also a very long state. You can imagine it would have made the securing of, of this kind of anaconda strategy, this seizure of the Mississippi and Atlanta, so much more difficult, right? So he actually says to think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same to lose the whole game. Not just about like the troops that Kentucky would have provided. And of course, all these border states provided troops to both sides. Um, so what you ha essentially had was a pro-union legislature in Kentucky that voted essentially neutrality. And for the first year or so of the war, you know, both sides respected Kentucky's neutrality, avoided intervening, and that kept... Um, them from joining the war until it's kind of easier to decide more directly with the North. Um, now, Missouri, um, you have a more of internal conflict there where the governor was a pro-secessionist and refused to recruit troops when Lincoln called for militias. In fact, the, the call for militias early on, it wasn't just about getting troops. The 75,000 troops wasn't going to win the war. I think Lincoln knew that, but was basically which states provide troops are loyal, right? It was it was really making making those states choose sides very directly. Um, Missouri didn't. Uh, the governor of Missouri refused that call. Um, but you had uh, basically a, a kind of a coup d'état, I suppose, where uh, a man named Nathaniel Lyon raised up a, a militia force of loyalists. They seized a major federal fort. I guess it would have been kind of held by secessionists at the time. Um, captured a bunch of secessionists and, you know, basically for this forced the governor to then side with the union. Right. So you didn't have that same neutrality thing because he did oppose um, sending troops. It basically led to this 
movement, this, the state militia forcing the governor to, to back the union. Uh, this becomes important because then Missouri is going to be under uh, federal military control, unlike Kentucky, which would be neutral in the early parts of the war. And this sets up the context for the, what's called the Fermont Emancipation, John C. Fermont's Emancipation. This is like the first major crisis Lincoln had to deal with in regards to, to the slaves. So um, as I tried to talk about a little bit earlier, it's a complicated issue because you have slaves running away to Union armies. And the question is, what do you do with them? Do you, don't send them back, right? That would help the war effort, right? Some generals did. Some generals did just send the slaves back or returned them to their, their masters. Um, you know, it's... Most of them kept them, and most saw them as contraband, and that eventually becomes the policy early in the war, is to accept them as, as contraband. This, of course, relies on the Dred Scott decision that slaves are property. Complicating this, of course, is the border state. What if a slave runs away from a master in Missouri, or Kentucky, or Maryland, or Delaware? Do you return them in that case? You know, they're loyal, so you should return them, but then that seems to, you know, put the government on the side of, of, of slavery, which I think many people, many Republicans were uncomfortable with. Maybe not Lincoln so much early on, but certainly more abolitionist people like Fremont. Um, and of course, to just unilaterally free the slaves, especially in the border states, where of course, early on in the war, this is where it was more, most important, would offend the, the slaveholding population there, maybe push them towards secession. Um, but you had the reality of, of thousands of slaves running away, many from border states, um, many from places under Union occupation, right? So you had, what about places that were secessionists but were occupied by the Union army and slaves then ran away? Do you return them? They're not actively uh, secessionists at that point. It, it, it's obviously a very, was a, was a tough um issue for Lincoln to manage early in the war when he's mostly concerned with keeping those border states in line. And, and so what Fermont does is essentially in the area where his command was, which is kind of like Missouri, I don't quite know the borders, but um, he frees the slaves. So what the declaration says, you have to kind of look this up, it's not included in the collection here. It says, all persons who shall be taken with arms in their hands within the line shall be tried and court-martialed and if found guilty will be shot. The property, real and personal, of all the persons in the state of Missouri who shall take arms against the United States and who shall be directly proven to have taken active part with the enemy in the field is declared to be confiscated to the public use. And their slaves, if they have any, are hereby declared free. Right Now, this, this is kind of like the Emancipation Proclamation in that it doesn't necessarily free all the slaves. It frees the slaves of, of secessionists where people are found you know, in opposition to, to the Union. And following this, he actually did free some slaves. There was, um, you know, he issued manumission papers to, to, some of the, to some slaves as a result of this. Now, of course, this was something very popular for the more radical Republicans, for the abolitionists, but Lincoln feared that it would alienate those border states, right? Even though it did target just the, the people in active rebellion and, and freed their slaves, he thought this could kind of alienate the uh, um, other Southerners or other border state people, I should say. Um, and so Lincoln writes a letter to Fremont, September 2, 1861, where he says, well, do you really want to execute these people? He says, if you shoot them, they'll just kind of shoot one of our prisoners. We don't really want to play this game, right? So, you know, he says, therefore, my order that you allow no man to be shot under the proclamation without first having my apparition or consent. This is going to be an issue. Maybe we'll talk to it about it a little more in the upcoming episodes where he, he did, you know, stop a lot of executions of deserters and things. Um, you know, one of the, I think the, you know, Lincoln was an imperialist. He did see the West as... Um, American domain. This, the Lakota Sioux, they of course have an uprising during the Civil War. And I think there's only like 300 Sioux or so, maybe more than 200 were going to be executed. And Lincoln uh, pardoned most of them, but still there's like, I think 20 or so. I'll get the exact numbers from the next episode, I think, when we talk about this. They, they 
he kept them he had them executed right he's a, you know he's responsible for that it's a pretty gross um event but you know he did i guess pardon most of them he did he still supported like wars to suppress indian rebellions out out in western territories though um but you know he did be a little he was a little bit squeamish about capital punishment it seems now, that's what his response to the capital punishment side. To the slave thing, he says, I think there's a great danger in the closing paragraph in relation to the confiscation of property and the liberating of slaves of treacherous owners will alarm our Southern Union friends and turn them against us, perhaps ruin a rather fair prospect for Kentucky. And that's his warning. And Fremont sort of ignores him. And eventually, Lincoln has to kind of write back, no, that's kind of an order. The first letter was going to be too passive and... and Furman resist and Lincoln actually has to talk about this with other people because Vermont is very popular he was a great explorer kind of a national hero and he didn't want to offend the abolitionists who supported Vermont's proclamation eventually though Lincoln has him fired it's October 22 Lincoln essentially fires Vermont and undoes his, his proclamation so that's the that's basically the what happened around this this um, firm on emancipation. A lot of documents surrounding it. The editors here thought it was a really important issue to document. Now, one thing that's not really hinted at here, but you can find it on the Wikipedia entry, is how Lincoln used the press to first kind of discredit Fermont's name and, and basically got it leaked that he was incompetent. So basically there was like a performance evaluation. And whenever you have that, you can find some private who's going to say this guy sucks right and that's sort of what happened and then it got kind of leaked to the press that this evaluation had some negative reports and then this gave lincoln the space to to fire him he didn't just straight up fire him for this proclamation he fired him for, for essentially incompetence um and he kind of made sure it was out there in the public first um now ah, we're we're almost at an hour here so I'm going to try to wrap it up. I, I do want to talk about one other issue here, um, and that is if Lincoln's not supporting broad-based emancipation at this point in the war, I mean, he will in about six months. So it's not a, it's not a, I mean, that, I guess that's a huge amount of time in terms of, of wartime, <laughs> of civil wartime. You know, six months is, you know, a generation almost in terms of how much changes. But... You know, what is Lincoln's like alternative? And that's it's the bill he tries to get passed for compensated emancipation in Delaware. So he's going to try this out in Delaware first. Uh, and I, I don't think this even gets passed. This is like a bill he, he writes up that he wants Congress to take up. And Delaware, of course, has the fewest number of slaves. It's the one slave state that was least likely to secede. You know, that, that I mean, I think there's just at this point a couple thousand slaves in the whole state of Delaware. So what his, his plan here is essentially to, to buy the slaves um, from, from them and then grandfather slavery out. It says um, $719,200 in 31 equal annual installments. Basically, that's the funding for it. So yeah, that's the plan. Um, buy every slave in Delaware. What, he talks about this, I think it's in the first State of the Union address where he says like, you know, the cost of fighting the war is like this much per day. And the cost of buying all the slaves in the border states would essentially be like one day of the fighting or something. So he says it's like it's more cost effective to deal with slavery in this way than to, than to fight the war. Right. I don't know if this was spreadable to the entire South. But no, obviously, I don't, I don't think it was. But he saw this as a way to deal with slavery in the border states and maybe a, you know, in a way that would secure their loyalty. Um, so that's that's the plan. And it shows up in the first State of the Union. Um, yeah. Um, now, in the State of the Union, the annual message to Congress after the first year of, of fighting, he, he talks a lot about the slavery issue, and he talks about his effort to get this eman compensated emancipation law through. And he also talks about colonization again. He comes back to the colonization. He even at one point says, like, to achieve this, you know, he's, he's not so delusional to think you could send all these people to Africa. 
So he, he says in this, this document, to carry out the plan for colonization may involve the acquiring of territory and also the appropriation of money beyond that to be expended on the territorial acquisition. I don't think he quite says where, but he mentions kind of Jefferson and Louisiana Purchase as an example of you know, how you can buy this land. Um, but you know, keep them in the Americas, is, you know, maybe is, is his idea here. He's not very specific. Um, Obviously, and again, I don't know how serious he is about that, about a practicality, but he seems the need to to talk about colonization. If there's any kind of hint that the war is going to lead to the end of slavery, you know, there are many people, even in the Republican Party, who don't see a future of, of whites and blacks living together in one republic. So that's why colonization keeps coming back, even at this late date. So um, anyways, that's, I think, the most important things in these documents from 1861. In the next episode, 1862. 1862, obviously, was a very bad year for, for, for Lincoln. Uh, very few Union victories. He, he, but it is an important year in that it's, it's the year that produced the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it's, a, it's a year where Lincoln really takes a lot of control over the military and the war effort. And it's a year of some successes out in the West. So um, it's not all bad news on the military front. Um, but that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. Uh, Lincoln and the Civil War, 1862. So leave your own thoughts below. What do you think of the Fremont emancipation? How Lincoln handled it? His plan for compensated emancipation? His compromise efforts before wolf fighting began? The way he handled Fort Sumter? If you have any thoughts on any of those issues, please leave your thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. By felling and mauling, our railmaker statesmen can do. The people are everywhere calling for Lincoln and Liberty too. Then up with a banner so glorious, the star-spangled red, white, and blue. We'll fight till our battle.